you can turn for the last time in your Bibles to the book of James. Let's be looking at the last two verses of this wonderful, practical, convicting book. Uh, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Uh, just such a great, great reminder as Sarah was playing there that just God leads us, doesn't he? Uh, and he leads us in such a trustworthy way. He got, draws us with cords of kindness, uh, Isaiah says. Oh, yeah, just a, such a gracious Savior. And uh, yeah, it's always a wonderful time, you know, when uh, there's playing during the offerings just to be preparing our hearts for worship, right? It's a great time to reflect and to just be praying uh, as we come to God's word expecting uh, that he is desirous and coming to feed us, to feed us by his word and spirit. And so we want to come hungry and thirsty, ready to receive everything that God has for us. James 5, 19 and 20, sort of a standalone conclusion to this book. God's word speaks to us. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Uh, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, would your word pierce and convict and draw us to faith and repentance this morning. Would your spirit be here and be at work, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, this conclusion of James is very unusual among New Testament letters. It's missing all of the usual uh, farewells and the greetings and uh, the benedictions and all those sorts of things we come to expect from many of the letters. It ends very starkly, very abruptly, um, and it leaves us almost hanging, right? Uh, maybe you've read a book or seen a movie that sort of ended uh, before you expected it to. Um, you, uh, you know, maybe some, some teens, they're searching for signs of alien life or something. They've been searching the whole movie and they, they come to that spot in the forest and all of a sudden you see the ship and then camera cuts away, cuts back and poof, they're gone, roll credits. And you'll be like, whoa. What happened? Did they get taken away? Were they killed? I don't know. Or uh, two, two people that have gone on this journey of uh, falling in love but being distant and, and you're hoping that they're going to come and find each other and uh, the person arrives on the boat and their eyes meet. They lock that gaze for the first time in years. Roll credits. And these sorts of abrupt endings, they leave you with an, a distinct impression, a distinct a feeling that they want you to have, and, and perhaps James is doing something similar here. He's coming, he skips all those pleasantries at the end, and he just ends saying, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And you could imagine whoever was first reading this letter to the congregation reading, the soul will be saved from death and cover a multitude of sins. And everyone's there going, mm-hmm. They say, no, that's it. Like, that's it, that's where James left it. He wants us to be left with an impression that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's a reminder to the church of the dangers of leaving the paths of life and truth and wandering down the paths of sin and death. And the responsibility we have to one another in the church community to watch out for one another and to exhort one another to stay on the paths of truth and life. Uh, there's two main characters in this text. There is the wanderer and that person who brings them back, uh, who we might call the guide. And so we'll consider each in turn the wanderer and the guide. James says, if anyone 
among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let that person know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Uh, We want to note, first of all, to whom James is actually addressing this. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. He's not addressing this to those outside the church, but he's writing this to those inside the church. That is to say, this is not a call in our text um, to reach the outsiders, but it's a call to recover the backsliders. Backsliding, a term we often use in church circles for those that seem to be leaving their profession, who seem to be wandering away from the paths of truth and life. This wanderer is a backslider. And James says this person is wandering from the truth. Uh, Now, what might it mean to wander from the truth? Well, James talks about the truth at two different points in this letter. He talked about it in chapter 1, verse 18, that we've been saved by the word of truth, which has led to your salvation. He's speaking of the gospel. So that is, it's truths that are to be believed. But secondly, in chapter 3, he says that by the way some people are acting in selfish ambition and envy, they are uh, not living according to the truth. They are living false to the truth. That is to say that the erring from the truth can be both erring from true belief, but also from the sort of behavior that accords with the truth. We're called to not stray from either the word of truth or the way of truth. And actually, in the book of James, it was the latter category that was more prominent. This whole letter is written, really, addressing various lifestyle behavioral errors, patterns of sin that had really ingrained themselves in many in the congregation. James is talking about how, he talks a lot about how this faith without works is dead, and he wants to call the people to a true way of life, uh, a walking worthy of the calling with which they've been called. And James addresses numerous false paths, numerous ways they walk from the truth. Here's here's just a, a, a short listing of what these sins are James is calling out in this letter. He's calling out quickness to anger, uncontrolled speech, disparaging and demeaning speech, demeaning speech against other image bearers, quarreling and fighting in the congregation, bitter envying of one another, slandering of one another. Also, he's calling out how they were favoring the rich and discriminating against the poor, how they were not providing for the basic needs of poor believers. He calls out their self-centered ambition and pride, the way they would boast in their business success and misuse God's name in deceptive oaths. And in some, they were hearing God's word but not doing it, and in danger of being proven to have a dead, non-living faith. Now, you can imagine uh, some in the church might have thought, well, yeah, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Uh, So, you know, who are you to to judge me? I know I should probably fix some things, but I just am the way I am. Uh, These sins James is addressing, they're not just uh, respectable sins, but he says this is the path of death. This is leading to death. In chapter 4, he gives such a strong call to repentance. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. These are not just things that can be overlooked. These are lifestyle errors. These are sinful patterns of behavior that are corrupting and leading people away from the way of truth. He says, this is the sort of sin 
that leads to death. He said their soul will be saved from death. That is, sin is the path, death is the destination. Now, what sort of death is being talked about here? Death is used in uh, three, three main ways in Scripture. It can speak of a physical death, which is probably not in view here, right? Both believers and unbelievers do physically die. But there's even more talked about spiritual death, which leads to eternal death. Spiritual death has been described by some as uh, all the miseries arising on account of sin. All the miseries arising on account of sin, and especially the non-physical miseries we experience on account of sin. These, this is the working of death in the world. We can think of uh, these deaths of the soul uh, like meaninglessness, selfishness, slavery to sinful desires, crippling fears and anxieties, discontents, a restless conscience, guilt, a sense of worthlessness, a sense of hopelessness. Sin leads to soul death. And the problem is that sin is deceitful. Sin promises us life and joy and fun and peace, but in the end, it always enslaves us and diminishes us. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life, they all offer empty promises. They dangle themselves before us and call us to them, but the end is the way of death. I've been reading through a Proverbs lately, and in Proverbs 7, it presents an extended picture of, of a seductress trying to convince a youth to come and lie with her. And we can think of this seductress as the personification of all sins that seek to seduce and tempt us and allure us to them. And sin comes so deceitfully. This seductress in Proverbs 7 is trying to convince the youth, saying, come, we'll take our fill of love. Love, who could be against love? Uh, my, my husband's away, I'm alone. You know, no one will find out. No one's going to be hurt by this. Uh, it's, my bed is perfumed with spices. This is going to be, be a great time. This is going to be awesome for the both of us. Love and nothing bad is going to happen. But then the writer comes in and he warns. He says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. At once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Don't follow the lights. Sin is alluring and seductive, but it leads to death. It leads to spiritual death. It leads to eternal death. Don't follow after those lights. And a difficulty we feel in this is that um, we know that we all sin. Right? We all know we are prone to wander. But this text, it's not speaking of those sins into which we occasionally uh, stumble, the things that seem to trip us up and hang us up. It's talking about a willful and determined deviation from the path of life. It, talks, it calls this person a sinner wandering. 
Now, the term sinner in the New Testament is used most often of those who are habitually living in unrepentant sin, those who are enslaved to sin and caught fast in sin. The issue here is unrepentant sin. What in 1 John, John will say, uh, the person who has made a practice of sinning. Sin is their identity and their determined course of life. The path of life is the path of repentance. It's not the path of perfection. The path to death is the path of unrepentant sin. The only truly deadly sin is the sin that's not repented of. But for the one who repents, repentance is the way to life. And as we hear this warning about wandering in the path of death, we ought to consider our own hearts. And we ought to ask ourselves hard questions to ask, are you living in any unrepentant sin? Are you walking habitually in any known willful sin that you are accepting and reveling in? Or are you hating your sin, desiring to be free from sin, longing for the day when we will be away from sin completely? Or do you really wish that if you could get away with it, you could just follow your own sinful desires? You could ignore the will of God and do what you really want to do. Have you allowed any sin to become your master? And today we are warned by the word of God. And we are warned of the fact that sin always leads to death. Sin never does not lead to death. The way of repentance is the path of life. And though in this text it is right for us to examine ourselves and to search whether there's any evil way in us, the primary applicational call of this text is a communal one. It's a call for us to look out for one another. Because, you see, most often we don't know when we're wandering. We just think we're following after what seems like a good idea. We are just seeking some fun or just doing what I want for a bit. And we don't realize that we have steered off into the path of death. And so we need one another to watch out for us. We need others to give us a wake-up call. So let's consider now the guide. I'm sure most of us, we all know those people that we fear are going astray. People we know wandering down the path to death. And often we are kind of fearful of confronting them, we're worried about questioning them or exhorting them or admonishing them. And the primary thing this text does for us is it helps provide us an appropriate way of thinking and a motivation for us to reach out. James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know That is, let this bringer-backer know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He says, let him know, okay? This is something that you and I need to know. Know this, remember this, that to bring back a wandering sinner is to see a soul saved from death and to see a multitude of sins covered over, um, returned to the paths of life, and the sins that they have committed covered over by the blood of Jesus, as they come to find hope and trust in his name. Sins covered over. And if we want to be 
instruments used by God to help recover these backsliders, we need to really internalize this reality of the beauty of this rescue, the beauty of being brought back into the fold of God, of seeing a soul rescued from death, to seeing one forgiven from their sins, freed from a tormented conscience, coming to find true life, true joy, and true hope in knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greatest rescue. And now we, we delight in uh, even physical rescues in this world, don't we? To, to see someone saved and rescued. Uh, I remember when I was a, a young teen, the first film that ever made me cry was Homeward Bound. And particularly, there's a scene, there's a young girl who's been lost from her parents in a national park, and she's alone and in a cave, and the parents are frantic. Where's our daughter? Where's our daughter? And of course, the, the faithful dog leads them to the daughter. I just remember that reconciliation when the parents find their daughter they thought was lost. Uh, just the joy. I just remember uh, crying and being like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. We love rescue and reconciliation. And we're told in Scripture that there's so much joy in heaven when a sinner repents, when that sheep is brought back into the fold of God, when the lost coin is found. Heaven delights to rescue sinners. And God delights to use you and me as his primary means of calling back wandering sheep. This text, it attributes the salvation. It says... The one who brings them back will save their soul from death. Now, of course, this is not talking about primary causation. The primary cause of salvation we know is God. God saves through the work of his spirit. It's his work alone. But as our confession states, God uses secondary causes to do his work. If a nail is driven in well, it's not the hammer that gets the credit, but the builder. And God, as the master builder of his church, he delights to use simple, uh, sometimes uh, hard-headed, dull hammers like you and me to do his work. But we get the privilege of being instruments used in the hand of the master builder to do his work in his church, to see sinners recovered. And this isn't just addressed to ministers and preachers. It says, if someone brings him back, whoever brings him back. You're a someone. You're a whoever. This call goes out to all of us. God desires to rescue sinners through the ordinary obedience of ordinary saints like you and me. We want to see sinners brought back into the fold of God, to be a guide to them. And now how might the guide go about bringing back this sinner? Our text doesn't tell us what the guide ought to to do. We have other scriptures. The, the main point is this motivation that we would know the, uh, just the value of seeing someone brought back into the fold of God. But it's right to consider, how can we actually practice this? What might this look like for us? Our small group last week was studying Hebrews chapter 3, and we spent a lot of time discussing verse 12, where the writer says, "'Take care, brothers,' Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The primary means God uses to recover sinners is our ordinary words, our ordinary conversations. The word used in Hebrews here is the word exhortation, 
to be mutually exhorting one another every day. An exhortation can take on both a negative and a positive characteristic. Uh, negative exhortation we call admonishment, to say, hey, don't go that way. Stop doing that. Positive exhortation is encouragement. Go this way. Follow this path. So as we exhort one another, we're saying both don't go down that path, do go down this path. The call is to use our words to call the wanderers back. That's what uh, Moses was doing in Deuteronomy 30 that we read this morning. He says, um, on behalf of God, I'm setting before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life that you may live, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, serving him with your whole heart. It's a strong call. And we love when this happens from the pulpit, but it also happens uh, on the patio. This happens in the context of our everyday relationships. And this means that a guide, a bringer-backer of the wandering, is going to be uh, an attentive listener, an insightful question-asker, a caring companion in the journey, a patient teacher and truth-and-love speaker. It's not just a matter of, hey, watch out, whew, I got it off my chest, I warned them, I said my piece. No, it's, it's a coming alongside. It's not the guy that just says, hey, that's the right way, but wants to walk alongside, to bring about uh, the needed change. Consistently counseling and conversing. Uh, there was a study a year or two ago called the Resilient Youth Study, which in light of those uh, fearful statistics about how many youth are leaving the church, they were saying what were primary characteristics of uh, those that stayed the course into adulthood. And of course, there's, there's many usual factors that you could imagine, but uh, what, the most significant correlation they found was that these resilient youth had older mentors who could speak into their lives, people to whom they felt safe to ask questions, to bring about even their doubts, ones that had strong relationships with older believers in the body of Christ. Because we need to look out for one another. We need to watch out for the souls of one another. And that means that an implication of this text is that we need to be in community. We need to know others, but especially to be known by others. Because who is watching out for your soul? Who, who is going to know when you're wandering away? Who's going to know what you are struggling with? Uh, I was told by a, by a Scottish pastor once that uh, one of the most common questions people ask each other in the churches in Scotland is just this question, they say, how's your walk? You know, that's their way of kind of asking, asking that deeper, not just how are you doing, but how is your walk? Your walk of life, your walk before God, your walk with God. We want to learn to ask such questions. How's your walk? We're called to enter into voluntary, vulnerable relationships within the body of Christ. It's a protection to us against the schemes of the devil. Boys and girls, uh, have you guys ever seen one of those nature shows where you have maybe uh, lions that are on the hunt? And what sort of animals do the lions always try to get? It's the one that's away from the pack. It's the zebra that's by himself. It's the gazelle that's by herself. Because they know that when they are separated and alone, they're vulnerable. Vulnerable to attack. But when they're together, they are safer. Now, the Bible calls Satan a roaring lion seeking to devour. 
And Satan more easily devours those that have isolated themselves from community, that have pulled back from being a known person. Now, we're not talking about those who, are, who we might think isolated, whether they are, are single or solitary, but you can isolate yourself by wearing a mask, by hiding what's really on the inside, by showing yourself as one who has it all together when you know you really don't. We isolate and hide our true hearts from others. And the call for us is to let those masks down, to allow ourselves to be known, that others might be able to help watch over our souls. And we have a lot of practical opportunities to engage in this. There's connect groups starting next week. There's hospitality lunches, small groups, Bible studies. But even more so, there's times at coffee shops, uh, sitting around in hot tubs, on boats, at barbecues. We want to be in each other's lives. And really, as a new church plant, this is often easier with people that haven't known your whole family and whole life growing up. Uh, there's no preconceived notions. You can come, and come as you are and be who you are, knowing that we as a community are ready to love and walk alongside you in life. We need to know what it means to see a wandering sheep returned. And brothers and sisters, there are wandering sheep here today. There's wandering sheep among us, and we are called to follow the way of Jesus and to seek them out. The wanderer might be your spouse. It might be your child. It might be your old friend. And there's souls wandering down the paths of sin that lead to death. We're called to find them, to befriend them, to know them, and to call them back to the paths of life and peace, to call them back to Jesus. Because you see, we're not dealing with trifles here. These are not little lifestyle tweaks. We're not just trying to call people to, to give up sex or smoking or swearing. No, we're dealing with ultimate realities, ultimate life, ultimate joy, hope, and peace. We're talking about the way things really are, the destinies of eternal souls. These are not small playthings. These are matters of life and death, and we're called to be instruments in the hands of our great Redeemer to do his work. And really our role, ultimately we know we're all just mini-shepherds who know that there really is that greater seeker of wandering sheep. It's the one who's sought you and the one who's sought me, the one who has called us and brought us into the fold of God. And we're all just seeking to walk in that shepherd's footsteps, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the shepherd that came to seek and to save the lost. He came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. He gave his life and shed his blood to atone for and to cover sin. He rose from death to destroy the one who had the power of death, the devil. He conquered the grave. He reigns victorious, and he has sent his spirit to draw us to himself. He sent his servants to speak his word to us, and he has made his word effectual for the salvation of many. And his word, it comes to you, and it comes to me once again today. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus is still calling, still seeking, and still forgiving. He says, come 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says to you, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says to you, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He says, come to me that you may have life. He says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. Because he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we have been healed. For we were all straying like sheep, but have returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of our souls. And so, dear brothers and sisters, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's no greater mercy than the mercy you have shown us in Jesus. We were all once lost, destitute, rightly deserving of death and condemnation, and you mercifully, you reached down way down into that a pit, and you pulled us up from the miry clay and set our feet upon the rock of Christ, put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God. And we praise you and delight in you for the wonderful salvation you have worked. But Lord, we ask that you would still do your work of rescue, that you would rescue those that are wandering away even today, that your Holy Spirit would prick their consciences, that you would show them Make clear to them that the path of sin, as delightful as it may look one step ahead, is the path to death. And you would call them back to the ways of truth and life, to the one who is life, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that they would repent of their sins, turn away from their destructive path, and turn to Jesus, looking to him, trusting his finished work, hoping in his sacrifice, looking daily to his mercy and grace. Lord, forgive us for his sake and help us to be willing instruments used in your hand that we would see wanderers returned and that all that would be to the glory of Jesus, to the increasing of his praise and his name in all the earth. We ask these things on the merits of his sacrifice. Amen.